Welcome to the Who's Left Podcast, a show on Indiana politics, history, and culture from the unapologetic perspective of the Hoosier left. My name is Scott Aaron Rogers, and I'm broadcasting from Bloomington. It's spooky season. And today, we're going to talk about something that scares conservatives even more than a drag queen reading Howard Zinn to a trans kid. Socialism. Today, I've got a great interview with Indianapolis City Council candidate Jesse Brown. He is the Democratic Party uh, nominee for the 13th District, having defeated incumbent Council Vice President Zach Adamson in May's primary, overcoming a massive $60,000 fundraising deficit. Jesse is also an active member of the Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA experienced significant growth after Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign, the presidential victory of Donald Trump, the 2018 election of DSA uh, member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Between 2013 and 2017, the median age of its membership declined from 68 to 33, leading some such as Holly Otterbein of Philadelphia Magazine, to credit the organization for the rise of millennial socialism. Notable members currently serving in Congress include AOC and Rashida Tlaib elected to the House in 2018, Cory Bush and Jubal Bowman elected in 2020, in 2022, Greg Kassar of Texas became the fifth DSA member elected to the House. As of July 2023, 51 state lawmakers and 132 local officials were affiliated with the DSA. Now, those of us my age and older, um, 44, remember when socialism was first a dirty word, echoes of 1950s McCarthyism and Cold War paranoia revived and amplified by Ronald Reagan, and then a joke in the wake of the Soviet Union's collapse, what they had called socialism, P.S., it wasn't. Completely discredited. However, here, I will read from Brookings Institute article titled Socialism, a Short Primer. Quote, It's worth recalling how important socialism once was at the ballot box to understand that this tradition has deeper roots in our history than many imagine. In the 1912 presidential election, socialist candidate Eugene V. Debs secured 6% of the popular vote, and socialists held 1,200 offices in 340 cities, their ranks including 79 mayors. Socialism declined after this peak and faced repression during World War I because of the party's opposition to the war. Debs secured almost a million votes in the 1920 presidential election of running from a jail cell. After the war ended, the communist seizure of power in what became the Soviet Union contributed to a Red Scare that further weakened America's indigenous socialist tradition. Unquote. Prior to that first Red Scare, organized labor and leftist activism went hand in hand, and, as such, the heavily industrialized Midwest was a hotbed for socialists. Buffalo, Cleveland, Chicago, and Minneapolis all elected socialist officials. Milwaukee had socialist mayors all but 12 years from 1910 to 1960. 
Before his career as a labor organizer, Eugene V. Debs, Hoosier, who I've mentioned previously, probably the most prominent American socialist of the 20th century and four-time presidential candidate, was a Terre Haute native and served two terms as city clerk before serving one term in the Indiana General Assembly. Hoosiers elected multiple socialists to office in the first quarter of the 20th century, including several mayors, a couple aldermen, and a few town marshals. By my count, Jesse Brown, our guest today, is looking to become the first elected socialist to serve in Indiana since Jasonville Mayor Irving Huffman in 1924. But first, Indiana, if you value what I'm doing here, please consider becoming a paid subscriber at scottaaronrogers.substack.com. There you can find my campaign finance research, essays, and podcast archives. Every contribution helps me spend more time organizing the disaffected Hoosiers tired of the way our far-right Republican supermajority governs this state, and less time spreading drywall mud. Not, not that I don't enjoy spreading drywall mud, but I feel like I've got more in me to give you, and in order to do that, I gotta keep the lights on and the internet bill paid. In addition... To scotteronrogers.substack.com, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and the disinformation cesspool formerly known as Twitter at scottroj78, S-C-O-T-T-R-O-G-7-8. We've got a new-ish who's left Facebook page. I cross-post there if that's your platform of choice. Do you do threads? TikTok? One of the others? I'm not there yet, but if you'd like to see me on your favorite social media site, hit up my comments. Finally, before we get to Jesse, just as good as a subscription is a share with your friends. It's going to take all of us together to unfuck Indiana. With that, here's the next Indianapolis City Council for District 13, Jesse Brown. Jesse Brown, thank you for joining me on the Who's Left podcast. Welcome. Thanks so much. I'm really honored to be here. So um, you are running for Indianapolis City Council, District 13. Tell me a little a bit about the district. What's uh, what's the neighborhood you're, you're representing or looking to represent? Absolutely. Uh, it's a really pertinent question because... Uh, so, for example, I grew up in Irvington, which is a neighborhood most people have heard of. If they've heard of any of the Indianapolis neighborhoods, got the big fancy uh, Halloween fest that's been going on for decades. Um, lots of history there. I bought my house when I was 22 years old. I could not afford Irvington. And so I'm still living in the same place 15 years later. Uh, and I live at about 20th and Riley. District 13 actually includes like 21 distinct neighborhoods that all have their own wow. names, traditions, histories, neighborhood associations. Uh, so I live in the Otterbein neighborhood, but all of the uh, NESCO, so the Near East Side Community Organization, was this umbrella organization. I said was. It actually is still around, still functional. You should go to meetings um, if you live in the East Side. But there's this like scattered mentality where it does not feel like one consolidated district in many, many ways. And in fact, uh, 
there was just redistricting done. So it hasn't existed as a political entity and won't until January, where hopefully me, but someone will take over that seat. Uh, and, you know, like many Indiana communities, there's a lot of good things happening in the district. And then there's a lot of bad things happening in the district. So while at the same time we have, you know, protected bike lanes going on some of the streets, we've got really nice, fancy new development going in for homes. We've got a couple of my favorite nonprofits in the city. And I'm not just saying that because I'm going to represent them. Uh, we've got some really good things. But then we also have the old RCA plant at what's called Sherman Commons, where it's the giant brownfield site that pretty much mm. my entire adult life has been sitting empty with poisoned land while uh, you know RCA was bought by Thompson Electric, which was bought mm. by another company. And all that money, you can hear the sucking sound as it just left the community, left the poison behind, and the profits go overseas. Um, yeah, I'm down in Bloomington, and uh, we have had our own problems with RCA polluting the town and packing up and uh, leaving. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the same story written over and over again across every town in the state, probably the whole Midwest, probably the whole country. But it's just, mm -hmm. I love it as a microcosm of what's wrong in our society that I I know I've got a friendly audience here. It's like, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have my criticisms of capitalism with a capital C, but, you know, even, for example, I'm, I have a libertarian running against me. And I think one thing we both agree on is corporations have kind of captured the government. And this isn't even mm -hmm. pure capitalism at this point. This is... Uh, what's that word for corporate control over an authoritarian government? Yeah, so it's becoming fascism. Um, and again, you know, profits are still uh, being created, uh, and it's just really unevenly distributed. So, like some other quick stats about my district is white-led households have 250% of the wealth of black-led households. And you could take an old map. I've come across this in my neighborhood in particular, I'm in the 46218 zip code, uh, lowest life expectancy in central Indiana in that zip code. And then you can also just look at the low life expectancy at the poverty rates and just like hold up two maps and overlay the old redlining, super explicitly mm. racist city planning. And they still map up pretty much one to one. So, um, you know, there's still like unfinished business in terms of our, our city's past and kind of how we think about equity and equality in the city for sure. Wait, so are you saying that uh, decisions made sometimes 80, 100 years ago uh, based on racial uh, discrimination are still having effects today? Shocking, I know it, right? It's ah. like, you would think, uh, like some conservatives have claimed, that uh, somehow after a few years, just problems have disappeared and it's no point in learning about them or reading about them. And obviously it's your fault if you're still suffering from them today. I was told once Obama became president that racism was over. That's true. Yep. Dust the hands off and we're good to go. <laughs> Done. So, uh, yeah, uh, well, yeah, tell me uh, more about, um, you know, the uh, disparities in, in your neighborhood there. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I knew the neighborhood I moved into was not the wealthiest or um, best infrastructure neighborhood when I was 22 in 2008. Um there were there, there's a sidewalk on one side of the street and not on the other where it does exist it literally disappears into the mud and uh like never to be seen again so some archaeologist is going to have a fun time discovering it one day but it's not doing any good to the people who live there uh same street lights right we don't have basic street lights mm -hmm. uh there are plenty of grocery stores on the east side of town but 
actually getting to them. All of our bus lines just run east-west, and so they'll take you downtown, but they won't take you, you know, five blocks south to get to the grocery store that's the closest one to you. Um, so we have more people who need to use public transit, ride bikes, things like that, um, the further east you go. But it's the closer to downtown, higher property value areas that end up with much better infrastructure. And so once again, it's like not a system based on taking care of human needs. It's just based on, you know, taking care of the people who grease the wheels. And so it, it just manifests itself in just about every way you can think about. Yeah. So, so like, uh, nice things that no one's actually using because they have cars and like, you know, park in the parking garage and, 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 and I think that's, it, it is similar again to Bloomington and much props to our city government around here. I actually live outside city limits, so I have no say in what they do, but I think they do a great job. Um, it, you know, they're, they're expanding transit and they're building out bike lanes and stuff and like, lovely but no one's using them and so you know conservatives complain about uh wasteful government spending and uh yeah, yeah it's it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy when like we don't do government right 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 and i mean i think that like there's some things that i'll agree with conservatives on i do think that um at least in indianapolis Democrats and Republicans alike have not really felt the need to make the case to the public for what their money is being spent on. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, well, you pay your taxes, you don't get a say, you can show up at election day and that's it. Um, and really, we don't like to talk about what we've spent your money on at that point either. And so I think that there is some real um, fair uh, critiques coming from average people towards people mm -hmm. in, in both parties. That said, I you know personally, I ride my bike as often as I can. I, I take the bus. I kind of made that a central piece of my campaign. And I do think we need massive investments in those. Uh, we're in the same thing in Indianapolis where, you know, conservatives will say, oh, Indigo, our bus system, nobody uses that. And so, you know, what's the point of spending what limited funds we spend on it? And, you know, where we've seen investments, we have seen ridership go up. And then we also have seen the situation where we're refusing to admit what we can't pay for. So there's just hundreds of millions of dollars in maintenance requests for our streets that have gone unfunded. And like the current mayoral campaign is colored by, we got a bunch of federal money um, mm -hmm. coming in and we're going to use it to try to catch up a little bit uh, and fix up some roads that have badly needed fixing for years. And that'll look really good for an election year but it doesn't fix the underlying problem. Like we have less money going into the pot than we have coming out of the pot to fix roads that, you know, call me a fiscal conservative, but that doesn't make much sense. Right. <laughs> I think we need to find appropriate funding streams. Uh, you know, I'm all about, we tax the rich or we tax the donut counties to make sure yep. if you're using our roads, you have to pay for them. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that for me, yes, I think many conservatives deploy critiques in a very hypocritical way. But if there's some truth to the critique, I think it's important to acknowledge that and not just say, oh, you're a conservative, so you don't get any right to complain about how government is run. Um, so anyway. Absolutely. Well, you know what? That, that, that segues nicely talking about the, uh, the mayoral race uh, because I get bombarded with ads for Jefferson Shreve. Oh, yeah. And all he talks about is 
crime, crime, crime. Um, you know, the cities are overrun. And well, you can't even walk outside your door. Right, right, right. Chicago. Scary. Um, right. Dog whistle, dog whistle. Yeah. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. City means black. Right. Like, exactly. Urban. I'm mean, scary. <laughs> there's, there's no way around it. Right. Um, so putting aside the the scare tactics and the, the the racist dog whistles, how is crime in your district? Um, what are what what's the city doing well, and what can they be doing better? Sure, that's a good question. I th I don't think anybody would be would say we're satisfied with crime levels, especially on the east side of town. Uh, in my whole life, the east side only shows up in the news when there's a murder or a shooting or something like that, and I think it's an unfair stigma uh, that we carry because of it. But there's some reality to it, right? They're really for a while, Tenth and Sherman, middle of my district, was like the murder capital of the city, um, and they're. More people losing their lives, more people suffering as a result of crime than anyone wants, right? Me especially. That said, I think that when we look at the methods we've taken to try to fix public safety, we can see what has worked and what hasn't. Um, so despite all the Shreve ads, we've actually seen murder rates go down in the last year, year and a half. And the reason for that is because we've actually started investing in clinician-led crisis response teams uh, within the middle of the city. We've started uh, really putting funding behind uh, violence intervention programs. So we have like Peacekeeper Fellowship that uh, really tries to find people who are at risk. And it's really pretty sad, but it's often predictable. You can see someone's behaviors in their late teen years and know without an intervention, they're going to be on one end of a gun or the other, right? And and it's not going to look good for them either way. This is going to be a really bad thing for their lives, for their families, for their communities. And so we're starting to do more interventions early on to help people find a path out of that, take the exit ramp, find a different lifestyle. And it's starting to be effective. What we've also seen, like many cities, is just throw as much money as we possibly can at uh, the police department and just assume that that will somehow fix the problem. Um, Indianapolis, we have hundreds of open vacant positions for officers. And so it's even more kind of surreal to look at the budget allocations, um, than you would think because, you know, no one is talking about, uh, cuts to IMPD's budget. It doesn't seem like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it already has so much of a budget that it couldn't possibly fill and Everyone knows that. And so it's this strange kind of political posturing where, you know, Shreve and Hogshead have, have kind of argued over who can fund more empty positions and make yeah, who's tougher cars up. gassed up, ready to go for the police if we ever manage to hire any. Um, you know, it's my opinion that police officers do have hard jobs, and we're asking the society to do a hundred different jobs. You know, I was a secondary ed teacher. That was my first job uh, right out of college and during college even. And while I was there, you know, I could do my job. I could come up with a curricula. I could teach kids. But then I would have to be a referee, right? And kind of mm -hmm. bring up fights. I would have to be a social worker to help kids whose power got cut off find a way to get some assistance to get their electricity turned back on. I would have to make sure my kids were getting their bus passes because we used Indigo as a little charter school. Um, yeah, there were just a hundred different things that 
any one of them could prevent that student from learning. And then I had performance-based pay. So as a teacher, you know, I, I had to be responsible for all of these things if I wanted right. to, you know, get my numbers up. And it was unfair and it burnt me out of education really badly. And so when you see, uh, you know, it's really the same across the public sector. I don't think it's actually mm -hmm. just police mm -hmm. who are quitting their jobs. But when you see people not wanting to do that job, I don't blame them. You know, we have to find ways to prioritize the stuff that actually needs a badge and a gun and, you know, not have to deploy a police officer for every little thing that we can possibly think of. Uh, yeah. So a little bit of a rant. Sorry. But well, well no, no, exactly. And no, and you, 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 you hit all the points I wanted to make. So congratulations. But um, no, well, no, but you were talking about it. it's 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 um, there's all these unfilled positions and we need more police. And that's that's what they always say. But it's like I, I, I feel like we we have enough police, but we're asking them to be social workers and crossing guards and everything else that is, you know, not dude with a gun shit. Right. Because um, the, the, the necessary skill sets for, you know, dude who's good with a gun in a high-stress situation and uh, a social worker, like, they don't overlap a whole lot. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, they also are have to have to be like low grade EMTs and be able to administer first aid and do all of this stuff. And, you know, I have a brother in law who's uh, an actual like paramedic and, you know, he sometimes gets frustrated because it's like well-meaning police officers don't know how to do like the basic medical care that EMTs are taught to expect that the police have done before they get on the scene. And so, you know, there's just like this constant Again, it's just this huge laundry list of things that they're supposed to do and be in charge of. And yeah, it sounds like a nightmare to me. I have tons of sympathy for good people who are trying to do their job well and, and just have unreasonable expectations. Absolutely. So uh, you said the, the, the city is seeing uh, some improvement in, in the, the crime level with these, uh, you know, intervention programs and uh, diversion and and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, you hear all the time that the number one cause of crime is poverty. Yep. Yep. Um, so I guess, uh, what, you know, how do we address that? Sure. And I'm really pleased, um, that cause I, when I ran in the primary knocking on a ton of doors, you know, I ran on a pretty tight message. I talked about transportation infrastructure. I talked about making sure when tax money goes out to bring jobs in those jobs better be union jobs that pay a living mm -hmm. wage, not just, uh, perpetuating poverty at the, on the taxpayer dime. Uh, and then just transparency, because again, I think people on both parties just kind of try to govern behind closed doors and don't like to bring the public in. And I just think that's a huge mistake. And we see the results in our voter turnout. So all that is to say, I didn't talk public safety when I went door to door, but it was a very real concern and people brought it up to me and wanted to know what I thought about it. And I would always wince a little bit because, you know, I don't, I, I, I've always said, you know, I'm a socialist. I will tell you exactly how I feel about issues. That said, I'm not in this seat to just be a one-man petty dictator of the East Side, right? Like, I really do want to democratically hear from my constituents. And if you think, you know, I'm a wacko lefty and you'd prefer this other policy and a majority of my district feels that way, 
I think that it's my job to vote that way and then keep telling you why you're wrong and try to convince you otherwise. <laughs> yes. uh, but not, you know, not just disregard how people feel because I think democracy is important and I think that your representative should represent you and not just what they feel like doing. Um, so all that said, people bring up public safety. I would get a little nervous because I was like, oh man, are you going to say, please, you know, quadruple IMPD's funding because I really just don't know that that's the solution here. And most of my neighbors understood that uh, crime was caused by poverty. And when they said, you know, we need to talk about public safety because, you know, we've got teenagers out shooting guns. So I'd be like, okay. And then they say, so we need some after school programs and like apprenticeship programs to help mm-hmm. these kids have something more important to do and something that feels valuable so that they have something to lose because they understood kids with nothing to lose are a lot more likely to just do dangerous, reckless things. Um, and, you know, it's when I say teenagers, that's like, I don't mean to stigmatize anybody. One thing that's true, you know, I mentioned the life expectancy. It does have to do with violence, but it also has to do with suicide. It also has to do mm-hmm. with drug overdoses, fentanyl, heroin. Um, they're killing a ton of people, especially on the east side of town. Uh, but really, all over the, the state, all over the country. And that's a public safety issue, too. When people don't feel like they can safely live a productive, healthy life and mental health issues, addiction issues kind of tear people apart. To me, again, we could call the cops when we see someone abusing drugs and send them to jail and pay for them to have a, a bunk bed and a, a crappy meal. And then they're back on the street with the same problem tomorrow. That just seems like a really silly way to use taxpayer resources to help people. Um, my father just died of a fentanyl overdose in April. Uh, we weren't super close, uh, but it still sucks, you know? No, uh, yeah, so terribly sorry. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, we, there just are too many people suffering and we have to do something about it. And I think that kind of public safety rooted in concern for everyone involved and just making sure everybody has a better life, not discipline and punish. That's never been my philosophy at all. Very good. So, um, well, let's talk about your uh, philosophy. Um, when did you take an interest in politics? You know, what got you going? Did you have a moment? Yeah, kind of. I mean, so hilariously, if you can imagine me, uh, and I guess like podcast listeners should look up a picture of me and then imagine me same height. Uh, about 75 pounds lighter, but with dreadlocks down to my shoulders. That was me in high school. So uh, I was a vegan, anarchist, straight edge, uh, you know, like very involved in politics, so to speak, um, but not in a way like I voted. I did show up and I always voted mm-hmm. Democrat, but I didn't have much hope in electoral politics. I didn't think that was ever going to do anything positive for our country. Um, you know, I was like very opposed to the Iraq war way back when and you know, just was pretty bitter and, and jaded. Uh, you know, I, I was raised in the time when there were yellow ribbons on every car, and I just didn't feel like there was uh, any hope that democratically we could have any kind of a socially progressive um, uh, electorate, really. And I've slowly come to realize that, you know, it's like when people complain about unions or when people complain about the government, to me, that's that's just different than complaining about a private corporation because you can't vote to change McDonald's behavior, right? Like you could try to vote with your dollar, but you're not going to be very effective. But member-driven institutions or the government, which is driven by voters, like you do actually have the ability to exercise control. And 
you know, I'll sound like a conspiracy theorist a little bit, but, you know, you've documented how much money goes into making sure this is the case. But there is a lot of money to try to make sure that we don't have real democracy and we don't let the people's mm-hmm. uh, opinions be be heard and, and followed. That said, I think my election proves that you can sometimes get away with some stuff when people aren't paying attention and you can push the envelope and try to to build a better democratic base. So um, after the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016, uh, my wife, Mary-Kate, and I wanted to figure out how we could get more involved in politics because we were so inspired by um, that run and it like reactivated all, all of our old like kind of radical urges and, and wanted to get involved and like, help push for Medicare for all and all the good stuff. So I ran for uh, state delegate to the Democratic Party and she ran for precinct committee person in, in our neighborhood. Because, you know, there was this Our Revolution group, if you're familiar with it, it was like the mm-hmm. offshoot of the Bernie campaign. They were like, yeah, do that. It'll be a way of like taking people power back into the Democratic Party. But then they just kind of like immediately fizzled out and didn't have much direction for what to do with those positions. And so yeah. um, I think both of us felt a little bit alienated and not like super happy with how we use those roles. And so it's a four year stint. And so Mary Kate was running out. Uh, uh, she decided she wasn't going to run again for precinct committee person because didn't think it was that useful. I was like, well, you know what? I've been meaning to knock more doors in our neighborhood and talk to neighbors and just figure out how people think around here. And I just figure, what do I have to lose? If we already weren't going to run for this spot, I'm just going to say how I really feel and just see who's with me. And so I knocked on my neighbor's doors and said, look, I've been voting Democrat my entire life. And yet life expectancy is going down in the neighborhood. Uh, The Democratic Party here locally doesn't seem to pay any attention to us unless we are politically connected or have a bunch of money. And the people in this neighborhood have neither. And so we're suffering. Uh, when you look at what the state house is doing to us, we need a party that can actually stand up and fight back. And the current leadership is not ever going to do that. Like they're not making any progress towards that. I don't hear the vision. We have to change things if we want to stop fascism. Uh, and I just didn't mince words. That's like what I said. And I won that election with 75% of the vote. So I was like, okay, all right. So like neighbors are like nodding along and, and not treating me like a crazy radical. Uh, turns well, out what, what was that people. election for? Excuse me. If, uh, if Precinct committee person. That was, okay, uh, it was <laughs> when I say 75% of the vote, I should be clear. That was 45 out of 60 votes. So it was a very, <laughs> uh, but at least in terms of my close neighbors, people were down, you know, and these were the insiders. Not many people show up and vote for precinct committee people election. Right. Um, so I was like, okay, so this isn't like, you know, the Bernie Sanders plan of find people who've never voted before and are you know, alienated from politics and try to get them to show up. These are the people who already do pay the most attention, who are already on the same page with me. So I thought that was a good sign. Um, I agreed. Uh, so I worked with a group, uh, Act Indiana, which is kind of the political arm of Faith in Indiana. And they were running or they were running a third party issue based uh, canvassing campaign for Dr. Victoria Garcia Wilburn who um, yes. was running for the state house. Uh, she actually, uh, small brag on her behalf, was the only person running a contested, a really contested election who won as a Democrat and flipped a seat um, that cycle. So I spent six weeks going up to Fishers, knocking doors, rallying volunteers, trying to get 20 people out of every week just to make sure we could uh, contact voters. And we did focus on the least likely voters, the people we knew agreed with us, agreed with the values of getting mental health care prioritized at the state house, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And we just helped connect to those people and make them realize like, yes, Hamilton County has been red as blood for our entire lives. And yet things can change, right? You feel this way. We're telling you we're knocking on tons of doors to talk to other people. We really can win this election. Uh, I said that. I'm not sure that I really believed it at the time, but I thought, hey, you know, may as well go for it. And we pushed about like 700 people to vote who told us they were not otherwise going to vote. And then Victoria won by, I think, 252 votes or something like that. So she gets all the credit for the amazingly great campaign she ran. But that little, that, that tiny percentage that uh, I was in charge of was, you know, happened to be what put it over the edge. So, um, again, you know, I grew up in Indiana. I grew up in uh, central Indiana. I, you know fairly progressive Latina married to a black man. Um, I just did not think ever, ever, ever in my lifetime would be winning in Hamilton County. And the fact that I was instrumental and like helped that happen, I was like, okay, all right. You know, I'm kind of liking this knocking doors and not biting yeah. my tongue and just saying what I actually feel thing. Uh, and yeah, so I decided I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring and run for city council. Um, the person I ran against, Zach Adamson, was like a, a political hero of mine coming up. Uh, he was the first out uh, gay man, I think, in any level of politics in Indiana to be elected. Uh, you know, he was known as one of the more progressive people on the city council, uh, but he just was not pushing the envelope far enough, fast enough, uh, wasn't pushing the fight against the Republicans. Um, I wasn't hearing as much energy from him anymore, and I decided... I'll probably lose, but, you know, I'm just going to run anyway. I'm going to knock on doors, talk to as many people as possible, and just at least maybe hopefully push the progressive uh, edge again and, and remind them, you know, his, his yeah. face. Uh, and then uh, at the end of the day, you know, like 7,800 doors later, um, we ended up winning by like 12 percentage points, despite being outspent about four to one. So uh, pretty, pretty shocking primary results for sure. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um so looking ahead, we're 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 coming up on uh, November here shortly, and I am to understand there is not a Republican running in District 13, but you do have a uh, Libertarian opponent. That's right. Yep, Libby Glass, who uh, I met actually just the other week, and I think she's a nice person, and I think she's running for the right reasons. Um, you know what she said is she doesn't think in a democracy we should ever have an election with only one person on the ballot. I tend to agree. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, like I'm the socialist on the far left of the spectrum and you know she's a libertarian, which some people describe as to the right of Republicans. But we have some similar critiques, actually, of mm -hmm. some of the ways politics has been done um, and ironically in getting big money out of politics and trying to make it a more uh, voter to voter concern. So I think she's a good person. Um, I feel pretty confident that uh partially due to structural unfairness like i have a very good shot of winning this election uh it's just difficult for a libertarian like they she has ballot access which is good but mm -hmm. people have to go and individually vote for her they can't straight party libertarian vote since they don't have a mayoral candidate um so uh i'm not at all counting my chickens i'm still showing up at community events i'm still trying to listen and, and be responsive uh and also it's it's not as uh the big election was the primary for sure. Excellent. So uh, it looks like you got got a good shot. What um what are your priorities come January then? Yeah. Um. So I 
hope my boss doesn't hear this before uh, I'm ready to have the conversation, but my plan is to step down from my day job and make the city council my full-time gig. Uh, I just think that um, I'm lucky enough. Uh, again, I've been in this house for 15 years. It's small, but it's paid off. Uh, my wife is an attorney. We don't have any kids, so we are not rolling in dough, but we aren't going to go broke living off the meager city council salary on my end. So I really want to just lean in and participate as much as possible and think about how we can build up like democratic bases of support, uh, lowercase d, where we're really going back to the community frequently, figuring out what is needed, what is wanted, and figure out how we can involve people in government, whether that's uh, in like lobbying, collecting uh, signatures or emails or something to prove that this is something individual people are caring about. Um, what I'm already hearing from my future colleagues on the council is that Democrats in Indianapolis are very afraid of the state house. And so um, understandably, they work really hard to fly under the radar and not let the state house while they're in session know about anything progressive they're trying to do. Uh, because I'm sure you've noticed this, but during the last state legislature session, uh, they the state house attempted to ban the banning of puppy mills, mm-hmm. not to mention mm-hmm. banning the ability for people in Indianapolis to ban red on red. So yep. uh, these people really are just bullies, and they walk up to our sandcastles and kick them over just to make us cry. And, uh, you know, like I get the fact that we need to be strategic and not provoke them too much. Um, although... I am happy to, you know, if they want to spend one day every week in the legislature session trying to screw over Jesse Brown, and uh, that helps protect our trans uh, siblings or anybody else that would otherwise be under the gun, I'd much rather me take the heat than anybody else. Uh, But of course, I don't want the people in my district to suffer, but for for my loud mouth. So there's a lot of uh, uh, walking the line carefully and making sure we're building the base that can challenge the Republicans to take back the state house and picking our fights very uh, carefully in terms of what goes public and what really gets a lot of media attention while slowly um, getting people involved in government and let them realize how much their voices matter. Uh, so if that sounds like a wishy-washy politician answer, <laughs> I apologize for that. Um you know, I, I'm very interested. There's a bunch of different committees that the the city council has, and there's 25 people on the council. So it's like, uh, you know, a very interesting scenario to try to find majorities and rally people to a specific policy objective. Uh, I tend to be super interested in the municipal corporations. So Indigo is our like kind of public and private um, bus system. Very interested in how that's running and have some opinions there that I think most of my constituents share. Uh, The library board, I kind of had some famous blowups of uh, frustration with how they have run things recently. And so want a lot more attention there. And so I'm interested uh, in the municipal corporations committee. But there's like 30 committees that I really am interested in. I'm trying to uh, not fall victim to the chase two rabbits, rabbits catch none. Right. Like mm, I need to pick mm-hmm. a priority and stick with it. And so I'm just trying to kind of weigh all my options, pull my constituents and figure out, OK, what do I move on first? Uh, the one thing I can guarantee, though, is no matter what I'm doing, like I'll be 100 percent transparent, um, let constituents in on how I'm thinking about things and what decisions I'm planning on making and offer opportunities for them to weigh in and try to change my mind if need be. 
uh, it's you know it's 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 inspiring. Like your 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 message is really uh, aspirational. Um, well, you said small D democratic. Um, you know, fifty years of neoliberalism has really uh, conditioned the American public to think of government as other. It's this right. big thing over there. When, when, when really, I think the the only way to defeat fascism is going to be more democracy, getting people more involved, and and putting the we back in we the people. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Very well said. Yeah, uh, I I just think that too many people. I mean. One sadly very common question I got while knocking doors and talking about the city council. And remember, like this was in a primary. So I was targeting people who were likely primary voters, which is like the most engaged layer of civil society. Right. And some of them would say, like, I feel really dumb for asking this, but what does a city councilor do? I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's the legislature of your local government. Uh, like, probably more say over your tax dollars than any other individual, since there's only 25 of us and, like, we represent the whole district. But people don't even know that. Like, there's not this, like, local civics and municipal civics for, like, how could you get involved? How can you put pressure on what legislators? How can you find out what's being considered? Um, and the city council has been doing some work to help with that. They've been making their meeting agendas more publicized and like spreading on Twitter, things like that. So I can't fault them for trying, but I just think that there's lots more that needs to be done in terms of just making people aware, letting them know that their opinions do matter and we actually can and should achieve what the, the people want. Um, yeah, there's just a hundred steps to get there, but it's important to start taking the first one now. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and the, the, the media certainly doesn't help with things like city council and uh, oh no, just the, the the most towns anymore are are news deserts for yep. the the unsexy details like that that actually affect your day to day life, um, and most towns have you know three pages worth of newspaper that's that's just the same stories recycled from you know, whatever AP or whatever. Yeah. 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 Uh, Yep. (laughs) Uh, And there's, yeah, there's just that, that disconnect. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, like there's a lot of assumption that city councilors can do some things, but not other things. And, you know, really, there's a lot that the state government does preempt and like circumscribe and just say like, Nope, you're not allowed to, for example, raise the minimum wage. You're not allowed to, uh, you know, have protections for abortion care because it's illegal at a state level. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's different things that are very important to me and my constituents that we just don't have the constitutional power to address, but we can, uh, adjust local taxes. We can figure out what incentives we want to put on helping different businesses come in or stay in. Um, We could incentivize like more entrepreneurship and small businesses, uh, which even as a socialist, I'm a big fan of trying to like create incubators and let people who have a business idea, give it a shot for a few months. uh, Let the government help them out and just like try it. 
They might find out that this is not going to work and they'll find that out before they go, you know, six figures into debt. Uh, or sometimes they'll find out that this is actually a really cool business idea and people like it. And so it's worth really quitting your day job and you know finding a way to make it work. Um, so I just think there's a lot of creative tactics that we can do as a city. Um, I, I felt really blessed that I got to go this summer to a convention called uh, How We Win, which was a convention of democratic socialist uh, municipal and state level legislators from across the country. And so I got to like meet Julia Salazar uh, from New York State and like Jabari Brisport and Katie Gallagher and uh, Ryan Clancy from Wisconsin and all these like awesome people who had been like heroes of mine and just got to like, you know, talk over beer and be like, nah, you shouldn't try to do it that way. Like the media will spin it the wrong way. But here's some cool municipal policies that, that you could run with. Uh, and so I just no matter what, I feel like, you know, those of us on the left are always standing on the shoulders of giants and. There's so much that's been done before we were born. But in my case, like I'm on a signal chat with a bunch of them and, <laughs> you know, I can very quickly be like, hey, so like revenue generation ideas were constitutionally prevented from raising property taxes. How else can we stick it to the rich and pay for what we need as a better, healthy society? Um, so it's, it's really cool to have like uh, this broader network of people all fighting for a better world. Yeah, the yacht tax is off the table in Indianapolis. I <laughs> not gonna... Let's put it on anyway, just in case. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you get pushback or people think you're some sort of weird, scary leftist if you use the socialist word when you're out knocking on doors? Yeah, so, I mean... I don't knock on doors and say, socialism, socialism. <laughs> I am just for You know, that's like not how I start conversations. I'll start by talking about the issues and how I feel about them and how I got involved in politics. And then when it comes to like my analysis or when people are like, well, how would you be different? Like what's different between you and the people who are already the super majority in Indianapolis? That's when I start talking about the kind of neoliberalism that you just brought up and the fact that, you know, I consider myself a socialist. And what that means is democracy and the economy as well as in our government. And uh, just making sure that we get big money out of politics and we let the common people decide how they want to run the show, because this is the government that should be working for them, not just the rich who get everything they want these days. Uh, and that resonates with people, like even people who wouldn't call themselves socialists. I literally did not have a single person when I was knocking doors talking to people who was like, I'm not voting for you because you're a socialist. Not one. I had some people who were like, I'm a conservative Democrat. I even sometimes vote Republican. I know you're a socialist and that's not my value. But like, also, you don't take corporate money, which means you're going to be a lot more likely to pick up the phone when I call you. Uh, and what, what do I think you're going to do? You're not going to form an alliance with North Korea, you know, from your one out of 25 seats in the city council. <laughs> True. I also wouldn't any like that's not. And they're like, no, no, I'm just messing with you. I'm like, OK, cool. Well, yeah, I mean, that is true. Right. Like. I made a commitment early on in my campaign not to take money from any group, period. I only took money from individuals, top two donors, Indigo bus driver, and an IPS school teacher. Um, DSA, my, my local branch of DSA that I'm very active in, uh, offered me $500 and I returned it because I'd already made that commitment. And even though it's a member-driven organization and they democratically mm -hmm. wanted to give me that money, I would rather grow the organization and gather more political strength that way than spend it on you know door knockers or anything um 
And similarly, uh, I have not had offers as of yet, but I am not taking money from unions either, just because I am a huge supporter of unions, but I think they should spend their money on organizing. Um, I know that's not how the allocation of funds works. I know they can't just take like PAC donations and, and move them into new member organizing, but I still hope to kind of set an example and just show the reason Democrats should work closely with labor is not because labor can give them money because yeah. labor is not going to be able to match big corporations, especially as you know, the labor movements moved along. The reason they should do that is because labor unions stand with their members and are a democratic organization that like care a lot about politics. And so I'm hoping to demonstrate that solidarity. Um, yeah. But so long story short, I didn't get people who, I, I got plenty of people who disagreed with me about specific stances. And, you know, there were some people who were like, yeah, I think we do need more police. And I think that should be the focus of public safety. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I disagree. I think most of your neighbors disagree. And they're like, yeah, I know I'm in the minority here. You know, that's fine. I was like, okay, well, but if you're not, and I mean, I'm not going to not listen to you because I disagree with you at the beginning. I'm just a dude the same way, <laughs> you know, everybody else in my district. I'm not some, you know, extra smart or extra special person. I have my own opinions, but that doesn't mean I'm too good to learn something. I'd always prefer to hear from people who have a critique of mine because there's usually some element of truth to it and I can learn from it and get better uh, and represent a broader spectrum of ideas. So uh, there are people, <laughs> I have a couple uh, bizarre haters online um, who <laughs> like, like really like spend more time paying attention to what I'm doing than I've ever spent paying attention to even like my, I've got like three Bernie Sanders bumper stickers but they're like, there's a, there's a guy who writes about me like every week uh, on his blog. Like, wow, man. Like, I'm, I've never even had a day in office yet. Uh, cool, I guess. Like, so I do have a couple haters, but um, they're not people I've run into at the doors. And uh, yeah, I haven't ever had somebody in good faith talk to me and like have concerns about that. Generally, if you're pissing people off and you have haters, you're you're doing something right. Yeah, right. I'm at least not going to give just milk toast answers that no one can find a complaint with because they're so hard to define, right? Right. Like, that's the complaint. Right. <laughs> you said a lot of words. What is it? A great sound and fury signifying nothing. Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, let's start bringing this plane in. Give me, sure. give me the, uh, the pitch. I'm, your neighbor, you knock on my door. Why Why do I want to vote for Jesse Brown? Yeah, I mean, I think it's because I care about you and I care about this neighborhood. I've been here my whole adult life. I love Indianapolis. It's my favorite city. My personal email address is NaptownJBrown. Uh, so I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I, I deeply want to make this a better place. Uh, you know, I started running for office because I was interested. And at the same time, I started thinking about it. I saw life expectancies gone down 10 years over the last 15 in my side of town. Uh, you know, one of my nephews uh, came down with lead poisoning because of the pipes in his house. And, you know, and, and this is like a middle class white part of the district. Right. And so I know that we are more privileged than a lot of my neighbors who are getting all of these and more. And even with our democratic supermajority in the city, we haven't seen the change that we need. We've seen a lot of new development go in. We've seen a lot of big uh, um, cozying up to large developers. We've seen a lot of treating 
the uh, big business side of our tourism industry, like that's the heart of the industry rather than the working people who make up our tourism industry and give that Hoosier hospitality. Uh, you know, I live here. I'm a real person. I don't take money from anybody other than my neighbors. And so I have to give a shit what you think. <laughs> I have to keep you happy. Um, I give up my cell phone number uh, to everybody I talk to because I want to hear from you. I do get some random texts in the middle of the night about like, hey, how can I help get my landlord off my back? I'm like, I really can't help you with that right now. But thank you for reaching out. Keep me informed. Let me know what I can do. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm all in. I really want to be uh, an assistance to the good people in the city who know how to make their lives better. I just want to get government out of the way and make sure the people who already have great ideas and are just struggling against the government right now to instead have the force of government backing them up and, and making the world a better place. Fantastic. Jesse Brown, thank you so much for joining Who's Left. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Love to come back. That was Indianapolis City Council candidate Jesse Brown. In review, socialism, not spooky. Actually, kind of seems like a decent way to organize society, and Jesse's a great guy. Now, 2020's capitalism, medical bankruptcy, white-collar criminal impunity, preventable homelessness, very scary, kids. Very scary. As President Harry Truman said in Syracuse, New York, on October 10th, 1952, Socialism is a scare word they have hurled at every advance the people have made in the last 20 years. Socialism is what they called public power. Socialism is what they called social security. Socialism is what they called farm price supports. Socialism is what they called bank deposit insurance. Socialism is what they called the growth of free and independent labor organizations. Socialism is their name for almost anything that helps all the people. When the Republican candidate inscribes the slogan down with socialism on the banner of his great crusade, that is really not what he means at all. What he really means is down with progress, down with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, and down with Harry Truman's Fair Deal. That's all he means. End quote. And I would add, since that time, socialism is what they called Medicare, socialism is what they called Medicaid, Socialism is what they called housing assistance. Socialism is what they called consumer protection. Socialism is what they called environmental protection. Again, socialism is their name for almost anything that helps all the people. I don't want to pretend the New Deal era was a utopia. Marginalized groups did not equally share in the widespread prosperity, and before LBJ's Great Society could be fully implemented, before we could achieve real social democracy, reactionaries and billionaires had begun to dismantle the system. Since the 1980s, 
anything once run for the public benefit has increasingly been privatized. Community replaced by commodity. Profit over people. We know the pieces fit. Frankly, if you want to make America great again, I think it's a little bit of socialism you're longing for. That's it this time for Who's Left. If all goes well, back next week. Until then, I'm Scott Aaron Rogers. Love each other, Indiana. <laughs>